Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Jaquetta Upton-Smith. She's Vice President of Operations for Advocate Health in North Illinois. How are you, Jaquetta? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing so well. It's a beautiful day here in sunny South Florida. What's the weather like in Chicago right now? I'm seeing the sun for the first time in weeks, so it's actually really nice. Still a little chilly, but I'll take it. You'll take it. I know that like the summer months in Chicago, they are pining and waiting and marking off the calendar until these days come, right? That's absolutely right. In fact, we kind of got a little shortchanged a couple months ago, and we've been wearing like parkas a little bit longer than typical, but when summer hits, just beautiful. And I've told you this before, and we're going to get into Chicago a little bit. No better city in the country this time of year, so excited yeah. to talk about that. But I want to start here because... It sounds like your career has been a little bit circuitous in terms of how you got going and where you've ended up. You're in healthcare advocate, like we just talked about, but you're in the administrative space. And I find that to be particularly interesting. Can you tell us how you got into this space and then maybe something about hospital administration that people typically don't know? Yeah, no, absolutely. So when I was younger, I didn't really know that the world of administration and healthcare even existed. I thought no. hospitals and healthcare were just mostly nurses, physicians who are absolutely essential <laughs> to healthcare delivery. And that was it. And I remember doing like internships and volunteer opportunities all throughout middle school and high school. And it was in high school, I had an opportunity to extern with a women's health surgeon when I lived in Virginia. And she just kind of walked me through. She let me shadow, go to surgeries with her. And I was like, I think this is what I really want to do. And then she made the comment when we went to her clinic, she's like, you know what? I'm not able to spend as much time with patients the way that I really want to. And I'm not able to impact like healthcare delivery the way that I want to. I've got my patient panel, but that's almost it. If you really want to impact healthcare, think about administration. And she's the one that opened my eyes to this whole world of administrative healthcare, where, yes, our physicians and our clinicians are absolutely vital to delivering care and making communities healthier. There's a whole other world of regulatory, of operations, of patient safety and action and risk that goes to support that infrastructure and make things as efficient and smooth as possible for patients. I mean, it's the business of healthcare to a degree, it's the experience of healthcare, it's what we walk away feeling when we go into a facility. So it's tremendously important. Is it a really competitive field? Like, is there a lot of people in this space more so than in the past? Or is this something that people kind of fall into? How does it typically work? Well, no, there's a lot of intentionality in this space. I think I just wasn't exposed to it until I was about in high school. But what's really interesting is that it's really kind of going back to your original question, kind of really a very different landscape of competitive just now, because it's not just traditional healthcare systems. There's so much now in like the AI space that impacts healthcare or in the retail space, you know, we have new disruptors coming in like Google and Amazon. So you've got a lot more of like a competitive field now. It's not just your traditional brick and mortar hospital anymore. So yeah, it's pretty competitive. That's awesome. You've been keeping busy with a recent merger acquisition for the company. Can you tell us a little bit about Advocate Health in general and then some of the recent developments in terms of the growth? Yeah, absolutely. So the neat thing is Advocate has grown. I've been with this organization now, it'll be 14 years this May. I started off as a fellow and have just grown up with the company. And this is the the largest that I've ever seen it. So 
we just merged with Atrium Health, which is an organization that's in the Southeast region of the United States. And so just as of earlier this year, we are now being able to cover 6 million lives across the country, which is pretty exciting. I mean, we've got over 150,000 teammates. That's what we call our employees, our associates, over like 21,000 physicians. We have over 27 billion in hospital revenue and healthcare revenue across the country. But the neat thing is we have over $5 billion in community benefit to kind of balance that out. So we're a really large organization now. We've got so many sites of care in several states that it's just nice that we're able to use scale to deliver excellent care that much more. I love that. So what does $5 billion in community benefit mean? How does that track? What does that mean? So Advocate Health is a not-for-profit. So that means that every single dollar that we make, we reinvest into our organization and back into the community. So when we think about community benefit, we're talking about like free screening programs. We're talking about education opportunities and fairs and increasing access for patients who are underrepresented or underinsured across the several states at this point. So like community fairs, we're talking about writing off. As you can imagine, healthcare can be really expensive, especially when you get into that chronic disease level. So we're talking about making sure that regardless of your economic background or your access or your education, that we're able to really look at health equity, close that gap as much as possible by taking that money that we make, reinvesting it back into patients and access where they need it most. I love that. It's so needed. Our healthcare is very privatized and it's obviously really big business. And so it's almost on the responsibility of the leaders in those companies and those organizations to figure out ways to give back and to help those underserved. I'm very passionate about that. I think that's very important. I love to hear that. Five billion is a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. I'm not taking anything away from our for-profit partners in the healthcare space. They do great work too, but just given the fact that we're not-for-profit, that's baked into our culture and our ethos as a system. So I love that. And I bet you feel that at the patient experience level too. Last question on this. In terms of the acquisition of Atrium, is that affected your day-to-day at all? Are you having a big role with that or is that more happening kind of on the outside. Not yet? Yeah, not yet. And I want to be fair. It was truly a merger of equals. We're learning from HM just as much as they're learning from like the traditional legacy advocate health, which we've got a lot to learn from each other because the things that we continue to try to learn and get more experience in, HM has done super well for years and things that advocate has done well. And when we think about like accountable care and again, you know, value-based purchasing, we've done a lot in that space and HM is picking up some lessons learned there. So truly merger of equals, but On a day-to-day, you know, we're really focused on making sure that our patients, our physicians, our teammates are taken care of. The biggest change that's probably impacted us is that we now have two CEOs. Uh, Our traditional CEO from Advocate Health, Jim Scottsburg, our new CEO from Atrium, G. Woods, and they have a very clear transition plan of how they plan to transition everything over to Gene Woods in the next, like, 12 to 15 months. Very cool. I love that. And it's going to mean great things for patients and, and all the patients impacted, so I love that. I love to hear it. So let's move into another topic, something that you and I are both pretty passionate about. You recently gave a talk, and I want to hear about it, on the importance of DEI and being intentional in your strategy. And I talk a lot about this with corporate DEI leaders, but I imagine it's a little bit different in the healthcare space. So can you give us a little bit around the talk and kind of what your objective and intent was with what you communicated to the people who attended? So the neat thing with Advocate is that we start every major meeting with a couple of like key staples. One, we start with safety always, and we're sharing a story of either a really great catch, you know, something that could have affected a patient or had a really negative outcome, but that someone caught or something that didn't go as planned. But, hey, let's share this story in the event that we're going to mitigate this happening to any other person in the future. So we always start with a safety moment, but we also start with a DE&I moment, meaning to help underscore the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion 
in this space with a lot of intentionality. So we had a conference with all of our leaders in support services and ancillary services, which are the two key areas that I work with in my role in North Illinois. And I was asked just to give like a five minute DEI moment. I was like, sure, I'll do that. And I had to apologize to the conference organizers afterwards because I definitely took more than five minutes. You need more than five minutes. Too important of a topic. We need more than five minutes. You know, as for president. Yes, absolutely. It's near and dear to my heart because I've lived this on a day-to-day basis. And what I wanted to share with leaders is I think that there's a lot of angst that can come along with DEI. Some of these conversations can be really uncomfortable if you've never had to have a conversation around DEI. And I wanted to make sure that leaders knew that it's more than just about race, which is crucially important. Obviously, that's part of my lived experience on a day-to-day basis. But there's so many things that you can do as a leader, regardless of what your area or your domain or your accountability might be to help further this journey and this commitment that we say that we are on on this journey as an advocate health organization. So I talked about, yes, diversity is important. Here's all the metrics that we're tracking. Here's the intentionality with which advocates attacking diversity. But the other piece is about inclusion. We have to be very intentional about thinking about inclusion and how we're creating that really safe space on a day-to-day basis for our patients and for our teammates and for our leaders. Because without that, we can attract all the best talent that we want. We can bring all the patients to our front doors from a diversity standpoint, but if people don't feel like they belong, if they don't feel like they can show up with their best self, then we're not getting their intellectual best. We're not getting their ability to be comfortable, to speak up, to ask questions, to challenge the status quo if they don't feel like they're heard. They might be invited to the table, but if no one feels like anyone's going to listen to what they say, then we've missed the mark. And so my goal with that talk was to say like on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't have to be this monolith and scary conversation and topic, but here are some key tips that you can do on a day-to-day basis to increase inclusion with your teammates. Yeah, I love this. I talk about this a lot. I have a lot of friends who are corporate DEI leaders. It's something that's really important at our company. And it's not something that's just a trending topic. This is something that has to be intrinsic to you, are not because it's just the right thing to do, because it's the right business thing to do as well. And one of the things that I genuinely believe is that diversity without inclusion is practically useless because at the end of the day, if you're being diverse and hiring diverse people and bringing all different types of diversity of thought, but they don't feel included, they don't feel that they can bring up a topic, they don't feel like they can share an idea or say something sensitive, then you're doing it for reasons to check a box, which is not the point, which is why I think the inclusion of inclusion, no pun intended, is a really important development over the last five to 10 years because now it's just not about, hey, we just, we did the right thing. We checked the box. Now we can move on. It's no, no, no. You have to have that inclusion aspect. You agree with that? I couldn't agree more. And like I said, we see this on a regular basis. And there are multiple ways that we look at this from a healthcare standpoint. So we think about inclusion of our patients. Again, we don't always control who comes through our doors. The idea is that you're taking care of communities. Like we have a privilege to help communities live their best lives and to live well. So anyone coming through the door, they need to be in a space where they feel safe where they feel heard, if they've got questions about their healthcare or their healthcare plan, or questions that don't necessarily align with who they are or their culture or their families, they need to be in a space to feel like I can say that, or, hey, this doesn't work for me, or this doesn't make sense without feeling judged, without feeling like they're gonna be that problem patient. They need to feel like they're gonna be heard to raise any kind of question possible. But then also from the teammate and leader standpoint, and he said, well, there's a strong business case for this. So it makes a lot of sense, but more from a cultural standpoint, why wouldn't you want the best and brightest brains around you on a regular basis? And it doesn't make sense to just surround yourself and say like, yep, to your point, we've checked a box, but we've got representation from, you know, whether it's age, whether it's experience, whether it's race, if no one is able to bring up the unique perspectives that come along with that background. 
then you've just missed the mark wholeheartedly. I love that. And listen, I'm a big believer in meritocracy and best and brightest, but I'd even look at it a different way. I would say my having gone through this experience, maybe growing up in this impoverished community or growing up in a single parent household or growing up in a different country allows us to give different and more accurate patient care that's representative of our patients, right? So like, I want the most intelligent, talented people, but also the diversity of just growing up differently and having different experiences allows you to see things through a different perspective that I just think is so important, particularly in healthcare. You are exactly right. And when we talk about like the different world of like administration, there's a whole arm around strategy and business development. How do we know where we're supposed to go? Where should we build? How do we make sure people access us without having diversity of thought around that and experience and background and lived experiences? then how are we able to remotely respond to community needs, which is the whole point of a not-for-profit healthcare system? 100%. Patients, customers, whatever it is, you're typically selling to a diverse group of people with different experiences, different thoughts, and having more people in the room understanding that mindset is going to make your business or healthcare network or organization overall better. Honestly, the reason why most of us got into the space in the first place. 100%. So I got to ask you, is there anything Advocate does in particular around practices or programs in the inclusion space that you think stands out? So we've been really intentional about it. And I would say even before George Floyd and his death, which sparked such a national kind of dialogue around this, and I'm very grateful that there are a lot of companies that have continued that dialogue years later, but Advocate's been really intentional. And so is Atrium actually. So now together it's even stronger of a conversation around being thoughtful, tying our metrics and our dollars to DE&I. So it's not just around like, hey, this is the right thing to do, which we all agree doesn't just make financial sense, which is the right thing, but we're tying it to our incentive as leaders. So when we think about the patient experience, we have questions and we measure ourselves on how different groups from different walks of life, different racial backgrounds, understand their experience with us, whether they feel heard, whether they felt seen, whether they felt like they were understood. We look at those questions on a regular basis, week to week, month to month, and then we create action plans around that. And there are dollars tied to that for leaders and for teammates. We also do that around our recruitment. So again, and this is where I love that there's intentionality around what it means to recruit the best and brightest talent. But we have a scorecard for our organization that is focused on like people of color and making sure that we're bringing, again, the right talent to the table, but then let's tie that to a financial incentive because what you don't measure, you can't really improve, but then also there's a nice carrot along with that as well in terms of making sure that we track everything when it comes to safety, when it comes to quality, when it comes to our financial performance, why wouldn't we also track recruitment and representation of our teammates and our leaders along the way as well? I love everything you're saying there. As a proudly minority-owned business with a bunch of different representation throughout our employee base, we have worked a lot with our clients in particular around multiple different ways to help either increase the diversity funnel, right? understanding what that means to that company, right? And having a diverse funnel of candidates, whether it be our internship program, focusing on HBCUs or typically underserved communities and particularly identifying them and going and pulling them out and bringing them to the light for some of these internship opportunities. We've had situations where we have a SLA to present a diverse candidate with every slate of candidates that we play for a full-time position. And this isn't something we've done recently, but in the past, we had clients that would actually incent us to say, if you find a diverse candidate, right? There's something that we're willing to do to go above and beyond in terms of fee structure and things like that. Now, why do we need to do things like that? Because what gets incentive gets done, like you talked about. If it's being measured, that's how it's going to work. And at the end of the day, it is important to these companies to 
get that access to a little bit of a better place, right? And so I don't believe that you need to forsake talent. I, we've had situations where we presented what we thought were the top three candidates and then the top diverse candidate as well so they can all be interviewed. Because at the end of the day, if they're all being interviewed, right, then let the best rise to the top, man, woman, whatever it may be, right? But you have to create the funnel. And that's the most important thing. And you have to give that opportunity. And so that's something that we focus on. It sounds like your internal TA department's doing that as well. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. And I love that it's not just out of one department. Like we know that DE&I is like everyone's job and call to action and responsibility. So even from like a patient engagement standpoint, I talked about the surveys and we track things, but that's a lagging indicator, right? That's after the fact. What we do on the front end is so incredibly robust that I'm really proud of this organization. So we're divided into areas or PSAs, as we're called, where acute care hospitals are geographically grouped together to help us align efforts better, economies of scale. And in some of our areas, we have what we call community health workers. These are volunteers that we have gotten from the community, like neighbors of patients, community leaders who have raised their hand to say, like, yes, I want to work with you, advocate. We've trained them. We've given them tools and education and resources. And they're some of our biggest allies to go out into the community to educate about the importance of certain screenings health disparities and gaps and inequities, and to help really build that rapport and trust with certain communities. And what we see is there is a huge payoff when it comes to like compliance, whether it's medications, to help us escalate issues around access, or even barriers that we try so much to make sure that we're measuring those non-medical social determinants of health. But sometimes you feel more comfortable talking to someone that you know already. So these extenders have been amazing when it comes to making sure that we're trying to access the communities where they are and help them be as healthy as possible. We got all our listeners taking furious notes. You have so many great ideas here. I love this. You're giving me juice. You're giving me energy. We want to talk about the hiring. I want to ask you one more thing before we move there though. Okay. You are in Chicago. I want to know, we have two sponsors, unofficial sponsors. They don't actually pay us. I just pretend they're sponsors. There's Celsius and there's the Chicago Board of Tourism. No, I'm just totally joking. Tell us why Chicago is the place to live, work, and play. What do you love about Chicago? What drew you there? I'm biased. I love the city. I've been here, like I said, ever since my fellowship with Advocate Healthcare. So first of all, the winters, they can be harsh. Man, there's so many activities that you can do, like whether it's the suburbs, whether it's downtown, the arts. I am a sucker for the theater. So I love Broadway. If it's kind of musical, I'm there. And all the best shows come to Chicago. What's the last best show you saw in Chicago? Oh, gosh. Oh, Moulin Rouge, I saw here. Was it amazing? My daughters would love to go see it. Was it good? It was phenomenal. Oh, actually, I just lied. The most recent show I just saw was just a couple of weeks ago where, and it wasn't a Broadway show, but the Chicago Orchestra put on a viewing of the Batman, the most recent one with Robert Pattinson, where the orchestra did a live score. That sounds amazing. And by the way, I think that movie's super underrated. I watched that movie and I'm like, this is so unique and different of a take, but I really like it. To watch the score would have been amazing. Wow. Oh my gosh. Like we just felt it so much more. So there's a screening there. And again, to your point, I thought it was super underrated. It was helpful to actually have it played with subtitles because there's a lot of growling and mumbling in that movie. That's true. It's also very dark. So hopefully like it was like well lit. <laughs> it was well lit, but the orchestra and just seeing like how much a musical score adds to a film was just a whole 3D experience. It was amazing. All right. What's your favorite Chicago meal? You're bringing somebody into town. You want to get them a good Chicago meal they can only have there. What would it be? It's either between pizza or hot dogs because that's what we're known for, you know? Sure. So we're probably going to go. Portillo's? I love Portillo's. Giordano's for the deep dish? What are you thinking? Giordano's is awesome. Luminati's though for a thin crust. I'm sorry. I know that's sacrilegious to say thin crust when we're a deep dish city, but Illuminati's thin crust gets me every single time. 
Now, she said Lumalnati is not Illuminati. They have That's a different right, type baby. of pizza altogether. Now, I've actually had Lumalnati's frozen sent to my house. It's like 20 bucks. It's incredible. I love the city. I already told you that. And so whenever I have to have my deep dish craving, I get it sent to my house, heat it up. Delicious, delicious, delicious. When I come up to Chicago, we're going to get together, maybe grab a hot dog, maybe some pizza, okay? There's one like five minutes from my house. We're set. Yeah. I'll be there. I'll be there. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. Now we got to talk about what we're all here for, I think, hiring. I'm passionate about it. You're obviously passionate about it. We've talked about it a little bit. Let's start here. If you have an overall philosophy for people you hire and bring into your team and organization, what would it be? I would say hiring for fit and potential, and then you train for the skill set. Especially in my role, I'm hiring more leaders at this point. I think it's okay if someone doesn't have the exact experience that I'm looking for for that particular role. So I'm hiring someone, again, we just talked about this, right? For their diversity of thought, for their background, for their experience. And ideally, I want them to grow in this organization. So I'm not just looking in, in like this one myopic lens of can they do this one role? I'm looking to see how can they contribute to this organization overall? How can they enrich this organization overall? So to me, it's all about the fit, the type of leader they are, as opposed to just, mm, do they have five years? In this particular field, there's a ton of transferable skills, especially when you get to like administrative healthcare. It's all about the right person. And then you can train on the hard technical skill piece. You're not hiring a resume, that's for sure. Is there a particular behavioral attribute that you single out for high potential? Like something that when you see this, you know this person's got a bigger ceiling ahead of them? Yeah. So for me, like I look for people who have a dimensionated track record for developing other leaders. In these roles, an advocate, we are a highly matrixed organization. So very few times are you hiring someone to just be a leader over one team, one department. You have to wear multiple hats. The majority of the time you're dealing with diverse workforce, whether it's because of age, whether it's background, whether it's talent, skill. I need someone who can understand people really well, who doesn't have to be the singular smartest voice in the room. If I perceive a lot of ego, I'm like, that's not going to be necessarily a great fit with this organization. But if you've got that demonstrated track record of investing in people, of helping leaders get to their best self, identifying those opportunities for improvement, those OFIs early on, and then helping people get to where they need to be. That to me is always like a really strong indicator that person's going to be a great add to the organization. I love that. So if I asked you to tell me about a memorable interviewing experience, good, bad, I don't know, anything come to mind? Yeah, a couple come to mind. And over the course of my career too. But if I think about probably one of the maybe hardest or strangest interviews that I've had was, it was a virtual one because it was in the middle of COVID. And the person that I was interviewing was for a leader role with an advocate. And the person wasn't very technology savvy, which in and of itself is not necessarily like a hard stop. But I was basically looking up their nose for the entire interview, despite, you know, multiple coachings to say like, hey, let me see your face because I'd love to see you. As we started talking through what this candidate was looking for, what this role entailed, started getting really odd vibes just around the way that this candidate was describing different groups of diverse backgrounds, the way that they kind of shared their worldviews were not just not aligned with me, but also not aligned with the organization. And they were pretty unabashed. Talk about lack of self-awareness, huh? I was like, you know what? Kudos to you for being your authentic self. It's just not going to align. Yeah, that's tough. I had somebody 
I think in the last podcast, somebody said that they had somebody show up to an interview in a robe and hair curlers because they so desperately didn't want to be late. So I thought that was pretty crazy. But looking up somebody's nose the whole time and them kind of having misaligned views. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. That's not great. We had a weird, awkward exchange where I was like, that's not the way that I feel comfortable describing this group of patients and populations. I wish you well. We just had to end that one. I think that's the right thing to do. When you make a determination like that, most people would kind of go through the string there, but I think it's probably good that you give the feedback around, well, this is why it's not a fit. So they don't have any question on what the deal was. I love that. Do you have a favorite question that you love to ask? Maybe what type of nasal drip do you use or anything like that? Or I only save this question for when I think a candidate's doing super well. I've used it professionally, but I also have the privilege of doing interviews for my alma mater for a scholarship program that I participated in when I was in school. So whether it's that cool, whether it's on the professional side, if someone's knocking out of the park, I want to test their resilience. And so I say, like, what would you say if I had told you you were absolutely blowing this interview right now? Like, it's, I'm just not into it. It's not working out well. What would your response to that be? And that's a question that I got in an interview one time, and it's just always resonated with me. And like people respond a couple of different ways, but if they say, now I'm giving all my secrets, so hopefully no one I ever interview listens to this. They're going to listen to this. You're just, you give it away though. It's all good. Ah, darn it. I want to think of a new question. But if someone responds with, I'm sorry to hear that, and they take it in stride and they respond with, I wouldn't want to know what led up to that, or how can I improve it, or how can we change this or pivot it? And they're not shaken by that. I'm like, all right, this person might do well with the resiliency and their ability to adapt with a curveball. If someone completely crumbles a little bit, I'm like, maybe not. And I reassure them very quickly. You're not. I just wanted to test your resilience. I'll let them off the hook. Oh, man. I love that. I can't even imagine. If I thought something is like going on a date and like, it's like you're thinking it's going amazing. Oh, man. She likes me. I like her. And then all of a sudden she's like, well, what if I told you that I'm not going on a second date with you? What would you say right now? That would test the resilience immediately. I really love that. I'm going to probably steal that myself and see how it goes. I would hope if I'm really building a rapport with somebody, they can feel that and they're self-aware enough to know where I'm going with it. But I like that because I think it throws people off. It throws people off and it's a good indicator. And to your point, you can see how people are processing it in the moment. If they're like, I know this interview's not going poorly, but let me answer this question. I'm like, this is a leader who can think on the fly. Yeah, let me frame it how I would probably respond. So I would say, I say, really? Because I felt like we had a really good rapport and I, I felt the energy was strong. And I feel like I really had a strong understanding of what you were trying to ask. Maybe I haven't been articulating what question or comment in particular may have stood out that would make you think I'm blowing because I'd love to address that because I didn't feel that, but I'd love to get your perspective. And I don't know. Is that a good answer? That's like a hundred percent right answer. That's exactly what I'm looking for. All right. I'm going to fill out an application. I'm coming to Chicago. We're going to eat hot dogs. It's going to be amazing. In terms of when we miss, because we all miss. Okay. If you made a bad hire and you look back and you're like, dang it, I wish I would have done this, or I wish I would have thought of this. Anything in particular? Is there a theme when you miss on somebody? What happened? Yeah. And this is something that I've actually thought a lot about. So am I kind of backing up a little bit when I talked about the DE and I talked that we referenced earlier in this conversation, I talked a lot about biases and how as individuals and leaders, we have biases, whether we know it or not, they could be unconscious. And it's important for us to do some self-work to understand what that is. I know for me, I have affinity bias. So if the candidate is in an interview process and we are communicating really well, or this person represents their thoughts very clearly, succinctly, concisely, automatically know that like I tend to favor that person and that's not necessarily always worked out in the past where you've got someone who's a smooth talker and then when it comes to like literally executing or raising up or managing talent it's just not aligned so what I do now is if I'm going into an interview and know a candidate is excellent 
communication skills or they present well, I am like putting that into its own compartment. Like, yeah, that's a check, but now let me listen even that much more intently to their words or let me really default to behavioral based interview questions. Because even though people can budge that, if you can press someone on a behavioral based interview, which is basically like, hey, tell me about a time where you had this specific challenge. What specifically was this and how did you resolve it? Or what was your role in this? They might be able to fudge the first layer of that question. But when I ask them deeper to say like, all right, well, unpack this part for me or you said something interesting. Tell me what that conversation was like. Very few people are able to kind of fudge that deeper level of detail. So for me, I'm trying to get at, are you just a really great talker and you prepared really well for this interview or do you have the experience to back this up? I love the affinity bias. I think I run into that same problem in sales hires. In particular, because in addition to add on to what you just said, if I'm sitting in front of me and they're selling me, I wrongly assign, well, they're going to be able to sell anybody. That's amazing. They're doing a great job. But the reality is there's so much more to being an effective salesperson, right? Than there is just being able to sit in a room and talk. And that is probably a mistake I've made, I don't know, five to 10 times throughout the history of our company. That is a great, great, great comment. I love that. And I'm going to have to keep that in mind. I'm going to compartmentalize. Being able to articulate yourself and communicate is very important. Absolutely. One book that I recommend to every leader actually is The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. It's by Pamela Fuller. It walks through all the different types of implicit unconscious bias that we may have as individuals. I think it's a really important self for some kind of like self-development, self-reflection. I have not read that, but it is an area I'm very passionate about because we are building software for hiring managers that alerts them to their biases, confirmation bias, recency bias, affinity bias, discriminatory bias, and highlights it to you and says, let's use recency bias as an example, right? The candidate you interviewed two weeks ago, you also scored very well. Are you maybe overvaluing the person that you just most recently talked to? It's how the system would prompt you, right? Or confirmation bias is the worst. It's another form of affinity bias. It's, I thought this person was going to be good coming in based on their experience. And so I softballed questions at them unconsciously and didn't get to the root of what I really needed to, or the other way around, right? So I think software and technology and AI, like we've been talking about, these are ways that they can augment the human experience in a way to help us make better decisions. All right, last thing. If you want to create a unique candidate experience for people that are coming to interview for you, if you want to give them a realistic job preview, because as much as it's about us as leaders hiring people, they're making a big decision with their life. They need to know what they're walking into. And there's few feelings worse than went through a great interview process, loved it, two weeks in, uh-oh, not what I thought. How can you help give people a realistic understanding of what it's like to work with you and at the company? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I actually just went through this maybe a couple of weeks ago because we found a lot of new leaders in different areas. One is I make sure even though I have a one-on-one conversation with a candidate, make sure one, that I am having a panel of who their direct reports might be. Because I think it's really important, again, to your point, not only am I interviewing that candidate, but they're interviewing the team and the organization need to make an informed decision. So, and I think that the feedback from potential direct reports of a candidate, super important. I include that my voice isn't the singular most important. And then also if I'm doing a panel interview, we make sure that just the way that we have a diverse slate for candidate pools, we also have a diverse slate for the interviewer panel as well. Because again, we want people to understand what it's like to work for this organization, who we are. If it happens to be an in-person interview, I like to walk around with folks, like see our hospital, see our facilities, I have the privilege of covering three acute care sites, so it just depends on where I am for that day. But meet the people, see what it's like to walk the halls, see if this is a place where you can envision yourself working. Because honestly, at the end of the day, we probably spend way more hours with our work families than we do with our blood families, our real families. Thank you. 
Thank you. We spend way too much time doing this to make decisions and spend time in a toxic place with toxic people. That's not going to say everything's always going to be puppy dogs and lollipops. It's like sleeping on a bad bed is the way I would compare, right? You spend eight to nine hours sleeping on a bed of rocks, you are not going to have a good quality of life. If you spend eight to nine hours at work and you don't love it and you're not engaged, you're not challenged, you're going to have a bad quality of life. That is exactly what I call those like the soul sucker experiences. You should never be in an environment where you feel like your soul is getting sucked every single day. And to your point, every single day is not a win. There are definitely times where I come home and it's been a really long day, multiple hours, well into the evening. I know I'm not done. And I may not have necessarily accomplished every single thing on my checklist for that day, but man, do I still feel connected to purpose. And that's what's really important. You don't want anyone on your team to like make that bed of rocks and then leave your organization with a short amount of time because that time to like recruit, search for, train, hire only just negatively impacts your organization if you don't get that decision right the first time. I love that. Real quickly, technology-wise, do you have any technology that really like impacts and helps you from a hiring perspective or do you use a bunch of different things? Like, What does Advocate do from a technology perspective and how do you leverage technology? So it's not so much technology as opposed to just making sure that we're setting very deliberate and intentional standards with the way that we interview. So I think maybe years ago, like maybe when I first started with the organization, it was very subjective, like the interview process. Now we are very thoughtful about having an interview guide. We meet and we pre-brief with interview panels to make sure we're all aligned on what we're looking for. We don't want that crazy wild card to come really throw off the interview in a bad way. So we're thoughtful about who's asking what question, what are we looking for? What have we asked in the previous interviews to make sure that we're making a standard approach as clear as possible so you're making sure that you're kind of comparing apples to apples as much as you can but then we still provide some latitude to go deeper into say a candidate because it was something that like pulls a thread for us major kudos to you there what do you do from like a note-taking perspective are you like scribbling down a piece of paper using excel like how do you keep track of things apologies to my talent acquisition team they actually give us a really defined rubric of notes and everything that we're supposed to send back to them that are it's so childproof that no one can mess it up I typically tend to jot down notes because I don't want to miss the opportunity to read the person in front of me. Well, I'm taking like really shorthand notes and then I try to flush it out later, but I'm a fan of OneNote because whether I'm taking it on my iPad, whether it's a virtual interview, whether I'm got someone in front of me, I know that I can access those notes anywhere, whether it's on my phone or via email later on. So I'm a fan of OneNote. Love it. All right. Let's ask this. I've been asking what's a day in the life like of many of our guests, but you know what? So many of them tell me meeting, 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 meeting. So what I want to ask you is this. When you've had a super productive day and you get home and you feel great about your day at work, what happened? You know what's funny is it's a day where I'm not in a ton of meetings. It's very easy that like my day is like meetings from sun up to sundown, but the days where I get home and I'm like energized, even if it's been long hours like based on the clock, are the days that I get out there and I can talk to our teammates. Whether it's the managers, the supervisors, I get to round in different areas of whether it's clinical, support, or ancillary, I get to be in front of teammates and say, hey, what's working well? Like, do you have all the tools and resources you need? Or when someone comes back to say like, hey, after that last time you rounded, it, we got X, Y, Z done. Thanks so much. I love connecting that dots because if I can help remove barriers, the folks who are really doing the important work at the front line, then I feel like we are that much more successful in our mission for delivering excellent care. I love that. I think there's a lot we can choose from here, but is there anything you're working on right now that you're really excited about, super juiced about? There's a couple of things. One, one of my hospitals, we just opened up a $55 million ICU expansion. It was a ICU that was undersized for the community and the type of patients that we were seeing, especially post-pandemic. We were able to do that through a pandemic, on time, on schedule, on budget. And it's just going to help us take care of that many more critically ill patients in our footprint. 
also working with our hospitals across the continuum and some really great experts in the safety space around making sure we're as prepared as possible for any kind of active threat that may come our way. And I mean, I'm sure you know, across the country, every single day, we're hit with a tragic news story of some type of mass casualty event that we've already got teammates putting their lives on the line on a regular basis. Part of my role, what gets me excited, is making sure that we're putting some infrastructure in place to keep our teammates as safe as possible. So I'm excited about a lot of the trainings and work that we're doing on that and making sure that we're open to feedback because we want to make sure that there's so much angst associated with that and, and potential violence that we're as thoughtful and intentional as possible in that space. I really like that. All right, listen, we do something on here where we like to go through an old LinkedIn post. We like to ask you, tell us about this. You have no idea what's coming. It's not anything very scathing or scandalous or anything like that. It's actually something very interesting. Fascinating discussion podcast about the intersectionality of life, leadership, and football, featuring one of my mentors and groundbreaking CEO, Rashard Johnson, with two-time Super Bowl champ and host of Art of the Interception, Asante Samuel. And for anyone wondering, Rashard's accountability room is no joke but also wholly inspirational. Tell us a little bit about this. Oh, man. Okay, so one of my mentors, as I said, Richard, was on a podcast, and he's grown up in the world of football and sports his whole life, but really dedicated it to administrative healthcare and is probably one of the best bosses that I've ever worked for, one-ups that I've ever worked for. So he did a really neat podcast on how what he's learned in football applies to leadership and has really helped shape him from this core of how he approaches challenges, how he encourages other teammates and develops leaders. So... That was really important, but what was kind of neat for me is Richard had something called the Accountability Room, which when he first came to our organization, we never heard of before. It was a 30-minute session where you had a pre-assigned topic for a KRA or a key result area that you are accountable for as a vice president, and you had to share, this is what I talked about the last time we were in the Accountability Room, here's what I committed to, yes, it's done, no, it's not, and here's why it's not done, and here's what I'm going to do to make sure that it is done by the next Accountability Room. And... It only took you one or two moments to realize, like, I need to move this needle very quickly and succinctly in a way that makes sense and communicate this and ask for what I need. Because Rashad would be like, that's great, but did we think about X, Y, and Z? All right, let's go be about this work. It was motivational because you felt like even if you had an insurmountable task in front of you, one, you weren't worrying alone, that you had a team around you, but you knew that there was some accountability, so we had to move on it. We also had something interesting in it called Elmo. We had pins with the character Elmo on it. But it stood for as an acronym for enough, let's move on. Because in healthcare, especially on the administrative side, you can get very, very chatty about things. And he's like, ah, we have 30 minutes. Let's cut out the extraneous conversation. What's the core takeaway here? So it was very good to kind of wave your elbow flag to be like, all right, we're getting off topic. Let's get back to the core topic. So a couple of things. Here at MSH, we have something similar we call a same page. Once somebody starts getting off on a little bit of a pontification or anything like same page, same page, we agree. Let's move on to the next topic, right? And yeah. listen, I'm the one that gets same page more than anybody in the company. So all good there. I've done elbowed quite a few times. So yeah. yeah, that can happen when you're excited and passionate about a topic. And then the accountability room, I'm absolutely still on that. I mean, that's, we're going to set up like a cage match in there. It's going to be amazing. Are sports a big part of your life? Do you enjoy sports or? I like sports. So I played in high school. I did a little bit of like intramural things in college, but really now I'm more of like a team mom. So I have three kids, eight-year-old, five-year-old boys and a two-year-old little girl. And our weekends, me and my husband is full of like, and our weeks actually too, t-ball, baseball, dance class, golf, swimming, all that good stuff. So now I'm more of like that spectator and supporter than getting a chance to do it myself. When I do have downtime, my husband and I like getting out on the course with golf because I used to hate that he would spend like hours on like a day like golfing. He's like, I don't get it. One day I got invited to a charity function. I said, well, I guess I'll swing this club. 
totally understood the allure of golf and now I've been taking lessons. So we like to do that together. I love that. I got four kids myself. I am carting them around all over the place, 11, 8, 9, and 4 years old. And yeah, same thing for me with golf. It was something that I didn't get into because I'm like, this is going to start to consume me because I'm pretty competitive. And now I've gotten out there and I'm nowhere near where I need to be. But maybe by the time I get to Chicago, I'll be at a level where we can play together. I mean, if you can hit the ball, you're better than me. So better, Okay, cool. Well, then we'll be perfect. We'll be our own twosome and then we'll put the two good ones in the next cart and we'll just be hacking all over the place. Yep. Last question for me. If you had to give one bit of career advice that you didn't know early in your career that you know now for some of our early in career listeners, what would it be? I'm going to cheat and say two things. That's fine. One is be very intentional about your self-development and carving out some protected time for that. I think when I first started, I was just so excited to like, hey, I've got my first role. I want to make sure I'm supporting my leaders and my teammates as much as possible. Let me focus on my day-to-day, on my strategic priorities. And that's where I spent like the majority of my time. It hasn't been until recently where I've been very intentional about carving out time for self-development. So working on whether it's an accreditation, whether it's making sure that I'm doing a self-assessment and carving out times for like bolstering my own skill set. I know I wasn't intentional about that as an early careerist and I wish I would have been. So that's one piece. The second is, especially for early careerists who are maybe leaders of color, is don't let imposter syndrome sneak in there. You are at the table because not just because someone gifted it to you, not because, you know, someone felt like, you know, you were a D and I hire, you were there because you earned it. And so walk in that, be your authentic self, and don't let that imposter syndrome creep in to kind of quash your innovation, your ability to speak up, and all the things that you could accomplish if you are true to yourself. I love that. And here's the thing with imposter syndrome. When you combine it with growth mindset, it ceases to exist, right? Everybody who goes into a new role doesn't know what the heck they're doing. They're faking it till they make it. They're trying to figure it out. But if you have a growth mindset, if you're I can learn this, I will get this, then you're not an imposter for long. Everybody's an imposter in a new role. And then it takes time and then you grow and you learn and then you become a master of your trade. And then what happens? You get into another new role and put yourself right at the beginning, right? Yeah. I'm with you. I yeah. love that. Be intentional about your self-development and don't let imposter syndrome hold you back. That is great advice. Chiquetta, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time with us. I'm so excited for everybody to get to listen to this episode. I guess I'll be in touch with you soon. Hope, hope to see you in Chicago in the summer months. Absolutely. Thank you and your team for this opportunity. It was an awesome conversation. All right, Chiquetta. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.